4040 Radio. Hello again. Welcome back. Good to see you. It's Nick Andrews here for a second episode of this great podcast. Delighted to be calling in again for a second week, episode number two. Imagine getting two done. Thank you so much for everybody that's listened along the way already. I am happy to bring you another report, some courtside conversations from beyond your normal field of view. So something a little different today. My thinking is that Hopefully, we're going to spend some time together on this audio tennis journey, me and you, you and me, Um, more of a one-way conversation, more of a dialogue. I want to bring you guests, I want to bring you interesting stories, and I'm going to. That's my promise to this great club. But in the meantime, I thought it necessary to introduce myself properly, because in my first episode, I said that I would, and then I kind of didn't. I didn't really tell you what's up with me, who I am. Now, an interesting reflection, some early feedback I've had from my own wife. I asked her what she thought of the episode. I asked her what she thought of the theme music. And she told me that when she heard the theme music to the first episode, she instantly knew that the host would be a white person. So yes, that is true. Um, Got me figured out. I want to start maybe with a little retelling of my own early childhood. I guess just paint a little bit of a picture as to who I am, where I've come from. And then I want to go deep by walking you through four key memories of mine that have helped shape my relationship with the great game of tennis. They're not all from the court. Some are from other kinds of things. I hope you'll enjoy them. And so to begin with my own little bio, my name's Nick Andrews. I'm an urban planner. I shape cities and I live in London, but I grew up on the subtropical coast of southeast Queensland in Australia, that great island in the South Pacific. Maybe you've heard of a town called the Gold Coast. Maybe you haven't. If you're a fan of Sam Stoza, if you're a fan of Bernard Tomic, or might I name Pat Cash, you probably do know the Gold Coast. It's where all of those greats grew up. And in 1993, so too was born a young future not-quite-tennis prodigy in Nick Andrews. Born to parents Greg and Shireen with sister Cleo. I had a pretty awesome childhood growing up just by the beach in the sunny yet boring suburban shores of the Gold Coast. While the Gold Coast today is a phenomenal and thriving cultural place, back then there was virtually nothing going on aside from activities that take place outdoors. Australians love to get outside, love the beach, love sport. We do not love active culture unless it's in yogurt that we like. So I went to a tiny little public school. Um, My dad, an architect, actually helped to build the playground at my school. We had a couple of tennis courts there. I had a father who had been playing tennis for a very long time, and so had my mum. My my mum's mum, my grandmum, who I call Nana, was a tennis player when she was younger um, and, you know, mentally I'm sure still enjoys the game. But really tennis was all around in my parents. Um, I have very vivid memories of my dad heading out on his bicycle to cycle to different clubs around the place on weeknights and coming home with plastic trophies from his social tournaments, which I just thought was absolutely so cool. I thought they were real gold. Um, And he had many. He was, the the number of trophies that my dad had would suggest that he was really, really good at tennis. Um, I think he was okay. As we got to play more, as I was older, I think that he was okay, but maybe he's kind of deteriorated with age as I sort of came up and improved. 
So I went to a small school. We'd play sort of, you know, after class with dad, got involved in some weekend coaching, um, got involved in a kind of little academy type situation called Pro One Tennis in Rabina, I want to say, Gold Coast for any people from there. I can't remember. I, I have no idea. Um, coached by the great Wes and Tom, two more icons. We would do kind of group coaching. We would do weekend camps. My parents on school holidays would drop us off every day and we'd sort of play tennis and had this kind of weird thing where the tennis club was right next to a hotel. I think it was a Radisson, which was in a, it was weird because it was in a random place. Like I don't know if anyone ever went to stay there for any real reason. But they had some kind of deal where we'd go and have pizza for lunch at the Radisson. Um, so it'd be sort of morning of play, pizza, Radisson, back for afternoon of play, picked up by parents who had enjoyed a day without us. Really, really special. My sister played. She had a strong backhand. She wielded a Leighton Hewitt-style Yonex uh, in red, which I think was cool. I played with white Prince racket, um, which I believe was inspired by the great Pat Rafter, obviously one of my favourite players, goes unsaid. And I was absolutely terrible as a kid. I really sucked. I think I obviously learned how to play. I learned technique. And now I think I benefit from a lot of time spent, you know, working on strokes, working on strategy and gameplay. But I would say that even as a child, I was just, I was mentally so weak. I had no kind of constitution of mind, I would go to my weekend competitions and just get absolutely railed by opponents because I would freak out and be defeated before they even, you know. I was kind of like the top 200 player that steps on to play Serena in early stages US Open. I always knew I was about to lose and I would lose. So at about 15 or 16, kind of stopped playing. I, I sort of lost interest in the competitive, you know, weekend side of play, I guess spending my entire Saturdays getting absolutely smashed by someone five years older than me stopped being fun when I was 15 or 16. And I really got into basketball and surfing. Um, I was, I don't think I'm a good basketball player now, but at that age in my school, I was pretty good at basketball, played point guard, scored a lot of goals, big fish, small pond situation, um, and really, really liked surfing. Surfing is kind of in our blood on the Gold Coast, everyone does it. And I also was not good at surfing. I was small fish, big pond surfing because many of the world's greatest surfers are from the Gold Coast um, and many of them are around the Gold Coast. You know, Steph Gilmore, Lane Beachley, I don't know if either of them grew up there, but they're certainly present. And then, of course, on the men's side, McFanning, Joel Parkinson, um, Dean, don't know Dean, you know Dean, the famous surfer Dean. They'd all be out there um, just absolutely killing it. And I think most of my friends were probably better than me at surfing. But I was the best at having fun, which I think is a gift of mine. So really enjoyed it. Got into longboarding, kind of like longboard riding in Byron Bay. And that was just very soul healing. It helped me be a relaxed guy, which I liked. So tennis kind of dropped off. Um and that's sort of where I come to the sport from. I've had a lot of coaching. I think I have a nice, diverse, all-court kind of game. I love getting it at the net. I can, you know, dictate points, hit all spins, hit all serves. Kind of a fully functioning, serviceable tennis athlete. If anyone with any real amount of competitive skill stepped on a court with me, I would die um, and be beaten. 
But I would enjoy the process. I think the mental side for me is so different now. I get frustrated if I'm playing badly, but now I just love it. I I think any game is a good game um, unless I lose, in which case it's, a, it's an absolutely horrible game. But no, that is the journey I've had. That is kind of where I come to the sport from. But is that very insightful into how I relate to the game or into how I come now to be championing a new tennis community and brand? No, it's not. So I have prepared for you four anecdotes, four core memories of mine on my life playing tennis. And I can't wait to share them with you right now. And to begin, let me read to you the bio of one former professional Australian tennis player, Mark Kimmich, with a C in Mark and a K in Kimmich. Born in Brisbane, no, born in Stuttgart, relocated to Brisbane, a full 10 years older than me. Oh, that can, conf- I had a weird moment there where I read Mark's age, which is 40, and I read his birthday, which is 10 years before mine, and I was like, this must be wrong because he's 40, but I'm 30. Uh, 10 years older than me, one inch shorter. Turned pro in 1999 when I was six. Career prize money, 70,565 Australian dollars. It's not a lot. Mark Kimmich was born in West Germany, but moved to Australia when he was five. He received a wildcard entry into the 2005 Australian Open and played Mariano Zabaleta in the first round, losing in four sets. In the men's doubles, he and partner Adam Feeney lost in the opening round to the Russian pairing of Igor Andreev and Nikolai Davidenko. Davidenko. In the 2006 Australian Open, Kimmich was again given a wild card, but he once more wasn't able to progress to the second round with 26th seed Jarko Niemannen proving too strong. He was also eliminated in the first round of the mixed doubles with Lisa McShee. Lisa McShee, I want to talk about more another day, legend. So why am I telling you about Mark Kimmich? Why bore you? Because when I was in my early teens, maybe 11, 12, I was enlisted by my father in collaboration with my tennis coaches, Wes and Tom, to be a ball kid at a Gold Coast tournament called the Rose Bowl. I know what you're thinking, Rose Bowl, Rose Bowl, that is a better and greater place in the States. Well, in Australia, we're not afraid to name our institutions after bigger and better versions in America. In fact, I grew up in a part of the Gold Coast called the Florida Keys, right near the Miami Keys. Um, my mum lived in a place straight up called Miami. That's how we do things there. So we had a tournament called the Rose Bowl and in the local scene, it was iconic. Um, Loads of greats had won it, Australians. Uh, Wendy Turnbull, I'm sorry, Wendy Turnbull, yeah. Pat Cash, Jeff Masters, Rod Laver, we know about Rod. Rocket Rod, love that. And the Draper Brothers. Most recently, Bernard Tomic. I can't get enough of Bernard Tomic. Bernard Tomic, will you be on this podcast with me, please? I miss you and I love you, but I digress. I was enlisted to be a ball kid at the Rose Bowl. And I said yes, because my dad wanted me to do it. So there's a reason. And because there was free food. And I thought I'd get to be around tennis players at a pro tournament, which was pretty cool. Um, The free food was ham cheese, tomato, toasted sandwiches. Great. But I think one of the downsides of doing it as a ball kid was 
that I had to kind of socialize with other ball kids. I was quite shy as a child, um, especially in that like up to age 13. So I was in one, I was in my shy era, shy guy. And I had to spend a lot, I had to spend my lunch talking to these kids. And most of the other ball kids were awesome tennis players at their age level, playing amazing pennant grades, playing awesome competitions, really high quality. And I have a very vivid memory of sitting around this lunch table, enjoying my ham cheese toasted sandwich. Well, enjoying the food, but not enjoying the conversation. Sitting at these tables in the club room where the Rose Bowl was hosted in Southport. And the kids were looking at their own pennants, like trophies up around the walls and pointing out the years that they'd won, seeing their names on it. Oh, Nick, what what grade do you play? I'm in Division 13, guys. I'm playing with five-year-old kids who are better than me, all right? So I didn't have a lot to contribute on the, uh, you know, underage prodigy conversation, but that's cool. Ball kidding was fun. I didn't really know a lot about how to be a ball kid. I did my best. I, I was, I think I was an intelligent enough kid, child, to sort of do the basics of it. Some of them were a bit keen and intense. Um, the art of ball kidding, the art of balling as a kid is all about where you direct tennis balls to. Obviously, priority is fresh tennis balls to the tennis player when and as they want them. If you're on the corners nearest the server, if you're not, your priority is channeling tennis balls up to those corner positions. But absolute chaos happens when a point ends and a ball kind of ricochets into open space in the court, particularly if it's not near any particular ball kid and it's kind of a sort of, is it mine or is it yours? And if you are you know, a not too confident child out there kind of second guessing yourself, it creates for some of the worst false starts. Um, so I remember getting in a bit of trouble from other ball kids for not committing enough. But hey, I was trying my hardest. So it was only one day. We get to the end of the day and I get the call up to ball kid the finals. And who steps on court? But yes, our favorite German-born Brisbane migrant, Mark Kimmich, playing against, do I even have to name him? You can probably guess. Scott Draper? Scott Draper. I kind of every Australian type of figure. Um, I don't think a lot is known about his personal life. He had a decent tennis career, certainly played with great people at a great level in that part of the noughties and maybe a little earlier. Never reached the sort of soaring heights of, you know, Pat Rafter or Mark Philippoussis or Leighton, but um, a really awesome career. And I think a very beloved person in Australia, even if he's not known outside of sort of tennis circles or globally. And Scott was on. Scott was on and firing. Scott Draper killing it, Scotty D. And I was back corner ball kid giving balls to Mark Kimmich. And he was kind of a bit unhinged. It, he was giving maniac that day and it was hot and he was losing and he was having issues serving. He was kind of few double faults, um, some easy balls to Scott, you know, the season pro making short work of a, a little sitter, a little free kick. And he had a kind of towel issue where he threw a towel at me after a bad point. And I was like, you know what, Mark, I can handle a towel, but I can't handle much more. And Mark chose chaos that day. He steps up to the line on a crucial point. First serve, nets it. No good. Mark, second serve, ball goes high. Big kicker, shanks it about a meter long. Mark turns, 
sees me, a humble, simple 11-year-old, just trying to get by, racket over the shoulder, full pelt, throws it directly at my little body and misses me by mere centimetres. And the tennis racket smacks into that net, sending a shudder through the audience. Everyone looks, no one says a thing. How do I react? I cry. I stood there and I cried. I cried because I was sad, because I was scared. And I absolutely hated that guy and I hated him doing that. And my dad, I remember my dad watching the crowd um, and I think I might've come off. It was kind of a little bit of an episode um, and he was pretty supportive. And one of the lines people, uh, I remember her well, sort of gave me like looks of um, empathy. But it was a rough end to the day. And what I distinctly remember was beginning the day at the Rose Bowl thinking, I love being a ball kid. It's so cool being around all these great players. I'm going to do it every year. I wanted to be a ball kid at the Uncle Toby's Classic in Brisbane. I wanted to be a ball kid at the Australian Open. I had my whole ball kid career mapped out. And that flame was snuffed by Mark Kimmich. So if you know Mark Kimmich, why not let him know? With one, with one impassioned throw of a racket, which is so inappropriate, you can terrify a potential ball kid career out of an unsuspecting kid. I don't hold a grudge now, Mark. For many years I did. But um, look, you know, I've played a lot more tennis in my life. And I know the feeling of frustration when you can't serve a ball. Um, and I'm not a pro and I even find it hard. So I can't imagine how frustrating it must be for you. But I think that I learned to respect the people in the game, which is why I, I hate to watch players abuse ball kids. I hate watching them um, abuse staff. I just think that that is the worst and it happens a lot. You see it in the ATP especially. Um, you see it with, I mean, there were huge cases. Sasha Zverev got into it. Um, even Nick Kyrgios just kind of can't help himself. Sometimes he sort of swings it into something comedic, but it is unacceptable. It's not on. Mark, you threw a racket and you took away something, but you also gave me something. Respect for the trade. And for that, I'm blessed and I thank you. And that's my significant first tennis memory. Memory number two, and it's an important one um, because it's a very beloved one. I mentioned that my dad played a lot of social tennis and as he kind of got older and I grew up as well, when I was in my twenties, if I ever went back to the Gold Coast because I lived in Melbourne, he would ask me to go and play at his sort of veterans social hit on a Wednesday night. And I really liked it. It was called the Wombats. And there were sort of what, four times four. So let's say 16 players filling up four courts, doing a kind of rotating doubles round robin in a format where you would start with one partner. If your team won, oh, and the courts were numbered, one, two, three, four. Let's say you're on court three, four is the lowest, one is the highest. If your team won, you would go up to court two where you would play the losers who've come down from court one and you would swap partners. So every match is with a new partner and every match you're moving up or down the courts. And your goal is to sort of finish the end of the night on court one. If you do that, it would imply that you have kind of dominated the evening. Or if you finish up on court four, it would imply that you have not had a great night. But you play with all sorts of people, um, I really, really, really loved the group. Um, they were all kind of my dad's friends and 
they were from all walks. So my dad was an architect. One of his, I think, sort of best friends through life, Phil, uh, was there. He was also an architect. There was a taxi driver. There were, um, you know, single mothers. There were um, other people with other types of jobs. But it was it was certainly a kind of older person's um, league. And there were a lot of old guys there too who had been playing all their life. And you know these types of people. They've been playing all their life. They've got brilliant stroke and technique. They can't really move around too well, but they just dominate out of kind of reading the play experience. Um, very frustrating to play against. It can be very difficult. But I always kind of played reasonable tennis. Um, I think in my 20s I came into a fairly good you know, I sort of developed a good serve. Um, and I just generally love playing doubles. It's my favorite format of tennis. I love coming into the net. I love poaching balls, finishing points, closing. Um, so that was really good for me. I always had, I had a bad backhand in my twenties. The first part of my twenties, my backhand was rubbish. I play with a single hand backhand, which in the last few years I've kind of cranked, which is nice, but back then I couldn't really do it. So that was sort of a weakness, but you know, you get away with a bit of a slice backhand. You get some freebies with the old with the old guys. It's all right. I think one thing about that group that was really tragic was that because some of them were genuinely older, sometimes I'd go back to the Gold Coast and one of them was dead, um, which was very sad and kind of particularly sad because I would form very fun memories with very old guys and that would be it. I didn't know anything about them other than, what is quite an extreme emotion of, you know, meeting and playing an amazing game together and getting a win and kind of forming like really good friendships. So I would sort of, you know, have a few years with one of them and you'd know they'd be unwell or, you know, these guys are in their seventies or above or sixties. Um, and then they'd be gone. So it was, it was rough. It was sad. And in fact, I think about that group, the Wombats, a lot. At one point, I got into organizing the Wombats because someone had to do the email every week, who's turning up and set the teams. And I eventually, you know, none of them were very good at that. So I eventually said I would do it. And even if I was in Melbourne, I did it for them. Um, and what I loved was that sometimes you'd set a team and someone would write in and be like, no, I'm not playing with him. We have 50 years of beef. I hate that guy. And be like, well, I don't know you. So I don't care. Um, but yeah, I got to know them all really well. And I don't know when my dad stopped playing with them, but he has now passed away. And I wonder, do the Wombats know? Just a thought, just a little sidetrack. But um, one particular day we played out at a different club to our usual called the Miami Veterans Club. The name is in the, you know, it's in the name. It was more aimed at veterans, so older guys. And remember Phil, I mentioned him a minute ago, one of my dad's kind of, I don't know, closest friends for a long time since I was alive, also lived in the Gold Coast. Um, Phil and I were playing a match together. Phil, I really like, but this man is unhinged. He, I remember him once playing doubles with me, my mum and my dad, and he like nailed a ball at my mum when she was at the net. Um, and she was so upset and swore and cried. And I remember him coming around to drop off flowers the next day, which kind of told me that not Phil's first time upsetting um, a lady because he sort of had a move afterwards, but that's Phil. So I was playing with Phil. Phil was good. Him and I loved playing with Phil. I, he had a very, he had a very strong, flat, low ground stroke, which was very reliable. Um, 
which was nasty to play against. His serve was decent and he was one of the guys I, I guess, played against when I was growing up a lot and he kind of taught me to receive a serve, taught me just to sort of block a ball back deep to the server. Um, so thank you, Phil, for the coaching if you're still, you know, out there. Um, but I would say mentally not so strong, um, just kind of a bit a bit out there, a bit left of centre. In this particular game, you know, maybe he wasn't having his best serving match. He serves a ball or hits a ball and our opponent is some kind of grumpy old guy Um, and he calls it out and Phil goes, really? (laughs) Which is my favourite response to a, a call challenge. So the guy's out, Phil says, really? And the other guy goes, yeah. And then under his breath, he says, asshole. But it was a little loud and Phil hears and he says, what did you say to me? And the old mate across the net goes, nothing. Phil storms to the net and he goes, an incredible comeback. You asshole. Ball up, serves a ball as hard as he can into this man, whacks him. And then old mate, the instigator, storms up to the net. And his teammate was kind of younger as well, but probably older than me, probably in his 40s. I was honestly cracking up laughing at these like old grey men having their little feud about tennis. I mean, it was so petty. Um, but they were kind of charging each other with their rackets. So me and me and your man on the other side got in between them and had to break it up. We had to cool Phil down. And I kind of said to the guy, I was like, to be fair, you did call him an asshole. Um, and that was not helpful. It just kind of fueled the fire. But I think it just paints a really good picture of the kind of horrible and toxic social tennis that we want to avoid. Um, You know, we all have stressful days and I think tennis can be many different things for many different people. For some of us, it is that sort of pressure release, but we can never turn it into this conflict thing Um, as funny as it is to watch. I think that you know, 40-40 hitting club is kind of about carving out a space where it's a little more mentally productive than um, challenging line calls on your Wednesday night social at 9.30 p.m. with the wombats and launching into full-on balls flying at people. So two memories so far that are kind of hostile. Maybe it says something about the Gold Coast, but I just think when when I when I did the exercise of remembering tennis in my life, those were the first two things I thought of because they were hilarious. People got upset, and it taught me to just chill out and enjoy the game. And memory number three, the third defining story, which I think gives some insight into the kind of person I am and how I relate to tennis, takes place in Melbourne. I spent almost a decade living in Melbourne. I um. I moved there, I think I was 20. Um, I, I lived in the Gold Coast. I grew up there. I moved. I went and worked in a mine. Awesome fun for six months. Spent about a year and a half traveling after that as a backpacker. Then went and spent some time in Copenhagen for a year just having fun. I was a tour guide. Can you believe it? And moved from there to Melbourne to study. I did, I did an urban planning. I did an undergrad and an urban planning master's at University of Melbourne over about five years. Um, and while I was there, I met my now wife, Sedge. I made amazing friends. I lived in cool places in Richmond and I played a lot of tennis, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of tennis. I lived 
probably five minutes from Melbourne Park, where many will know um, the Australian Open to take place. Honestly, such an incredible tennis club. And you can be a member there for, I think, 60 Australian dollars a month. Yeah, 60 Australian dollars a month, maybe. Or like, what is that? Seven pounds, 30 US dollars, who knows? And you can play on literally the best courts in the world. You've got indoor, you've got maybe 30 or 40 good outdoor courts available to you. And I was very fortunate to be friends with the great Phil who worked there. Different Phil from this story. Phil was a great Canadian lad um, who would occasionally let me play my matches on the stadiums. So show court three, um, some of the, one of the stadiums is named after like a year, like 1847. I think it's an alcohol sponsor. Um, but yeah, honestly, I, I cannot, I will never forget how good it was living five minutes away from Melbourne Park and getting to play there anytime I wanted with great people and great friends. And I played in a variety of competitions. And I think, you know, over the time I spent there is when tennis became something I really felt better about. Um, I was playing with a variety of awesome people. I built out my game. I kind of found a bit of a weapon in a backhand. I made my forehand really work for me. Um, the kick serve really came up while I was in Melbourne, had some great coaches with the young Tally, one of the coaches out there, and we sort of worked hard on serves. Volleying I've always kind of had in my arsenal, but I guess the game kind of rounded out in a really fun way. I met awesome people. Um, I think to come to mind, Anthony was, I met Anthony through a housemate. I don't really even know the housemate anymore, but Anthony and I clicked. He was French, played brilliant tennis. His backhand, his two-handed backhand is sick. And it was one of the best around even that club. Um, shame it never really showed up in competitive matches. I'm just kidding. Um, but no, Anthony was a legend and we played so many tournaments together, like social comps. We were a sort of regular partnership. Um, and I love that man. And I miss that man. And then also Ronan, um, who came to my wedding, an Irish guy who is the most decent person. He is so kind, but so crazy um, and just has the most brilliant brain that does amazing things. And he kind of had a badminton background in Ireland. He was some sort of national champ for his age group um, as a teenager. But, you know, life took him in other directions. But he kind of carried that badminton style with him. So very accurate, very efficient overheads, um, can serve really well and can kind of place a ball in a court in a very special way. I wouldn't say he hits, you know, he's not hitting like blinding shots or like really technically, you know, he's not loading the ball with a lot of top spin, but he is able to place a ball kind of anywhere. And he's, he's quite a successful guy. His mental strength is crazy. And he's someone that's kind of taught me that you know, if you've got a serviceful game, that's cool. But you can win a lot of matches if you can have the sort of the the leg up on someone mentally. If you can just keep in control, keep calm and continue operating points and dictating play, you'll get wins, um, which I think is a good lesson. But one year, the club, Melbourne Park, decided to put on a kind of one-day tournament for its social players. Um, at that time, we had the UTR, Ultimate Tennis rating system. I don't know what UTR meant. Um, and I kind of was the level where I could get into the comp and it was, 
you know, pretty exciting. It was prize money and it wasn't something I'd ever really done before. And I entered and Anthony entered in the kind of singles divisions. And the idea is that we'd play a group stage and then, you know, single set games, single set matches, and then go on to kind of play longer matches in quarters, semis and finals. Um, and I knew a lot of the players going in and, you know, some I'd beaten before, some would be challenging, but I was literally so excited. I thought that this was the most fun idea because I was loving tennis. Um, and I'd never, I'd never done anything like that. There, there isn't a lot of that available if you're not a sort of club pennant player, which I hadn't really been in Melbourne. So I enrolled and I talked about it with Phil, the organizer for weeks and weeks and weeks. We talked about training. I went out on courts with bags of balls and served them. Anthony and I went and did drills with each other. I studied. I thought about game plans. I looked at who I was playing. I had strategy mapped out. I put more effort into this than I've put into any professional job in the past. I even bought, and this is very cringe, a complete outfit of Adidas apparel for the comp. I had the sneakers. I had the socks. I had the Adidas club shorts with the three stripe and the Adidas PK polo, um, which I bought from some tennis store in Richmond. Can't remember where. Um, misjudged the size. I got absolutely massive sizes, but I don't know what was going on. I thought, yeah, this is cool. And I honestly looked ridiculous in this pure white, all branded Adidas kit. I looked like I was stepping onto a sort of challenger series. Um, in you know New Mexico, playing for ten thousand US dollars and an ATP point, I did not look cool at all. But so excited was I for the comp that I had my full outfit. I had my nutrition dialed in. I was sleeping well. I wasn't drinking. The comp was on a Saturday. On the Friday night, I go to bed early. I've got my my kit ready, hung up, my racket regripped, restrung. Got my spare. I'm ready to murder this thing. And I wake up on a Saturday to the strongest and most dangerous winds of the year. And in my inbox is a letter, is an email from the club confirming competition cancelled. I almost cried. I remember walking out to my wife, my now wife in the living room with the saddest look. And I just said, it's cancelled. And she laughed at me so much because of how incredibly, insanely prepared I was for what is essentially just a random social competition. And then it fell through. But she did feel for me. And, um, you know, I think, I think it was a special moment for me because, first of all, I guess I learned something about the buying tennis apparel because I would often wear gym gear for tennis. And when I wanted to buy a proper tennis kit, there was not a lot of cool stuff. Things were very, that kind of polyester feel, like doesn't feel nice, not very breathable. Things weren't very cool. And things were also very expensive, I thought. Um, so, you know, it, it was a bit of a apparel seeking journey. And I learned just to love the process because, hey, there's nothing wrong with getting out and doing a bit of practice, treating yourself to some new tennis gums and getting a good night's sleep, even if the comp isn't going to happen. And my final formative tennis memory to share with you also takes place in the great state of Victoria, Australia. And this is one of pure, unadulterated joy. I worked at a giant multinational engineering firm where I was an urban planner doing infrastructure projects. And I was kind of a social butterfly at this job. I think I was 
known for being quite loud, quite gregarious. I met a lot of people outside of my team, which wasn't really done. Um, these these the companies like that, they're kind of people are introverted. They're work focused. They don't want to be seen. They want to kind of rise the ranks and be that hardworking person. And I I did work hard. I was successful there. I think I just believed in meeting people and having a good time with it. And I met some great folks. I met some quantity surveyors, kind of people that maybe, you know, they're not outside enough. Legends who love to socialize, but have they met someone like me? Maybe not. Um, and something I suggested with my little crew from across teams was a little multi-disc social weekend away, which is a very radical idea. It's not normal to get someone in a big corporate company picking a bunch of random people from different teams and saying, hey, should we all go spend a weekend fishing? Which is exactly what I did. And it was the greatest idea. I picked a crew of, there must have been eight of us, and found a giant kind of fishing house um, by a lake, the great Lake Eildon in Victoria. And we literally went away. And it was funny because my th- there were two groups. There was a kind of younger group, all in their sort of 20s and very, very early 30s. And then the older group who were dads in their, you know, later 30s and 40s. Um, So it was kind of contrasting. We didn't all know each other too well, but I didn't care about that. And one thing we did was identify that the town of, I think it was just called Eildon, had a tennis club. So we all took rackets and I hyped it up with the gang that we would go play tennis. And Everyone else kind of, yeah, they had rackets. They obviously played a little bit, but no one played as much as me. We went down there one afternoon. uh, You know, our first night we arrived and it's just beers, drinking. Awesome. Guys, just getting the nerves out. Next morning, we make breakfast. We do all that, nurse our heads, and we make our way down to the tennis club probably for about midday. And we start hitting balls. And honestly, five hours passed. And it was five of the most fun and joyful hours of tennis I have ever had. Everyone was playing games with each other, playing matches. Everyone wanted to kind of beat, like, you know, topple me just because I played more tennis. Someone had a drone out taking footage. Um, the sun was amazing and it was hot. A couple of the guys did a bit of a run to pick up, like, food from the local burger shop. We came back with hot chips and burgers and stuff. Um, we had some beers. And by the end of it, honestly, some of those guys had sustained permanent injuries because they've gone from playing very little to an extreme amount of tennis in one day. Um, and I think the knees uh, was took a toll on the knees. But honestly, just such a fun memory because I think tennis is this incredible, you know, social glue um, where it's kind of better to hang out with people over a game of tennis, it's, you sort of see different sides of people. Um, and I think you can kind of see the best side of people. And I think that, you know, groups of guys will go and do this, but, um, 40, 40 hitting club, I suppose, reflecting on that time, it's just about creating a forum so that more and more people can do that. Because uh, it can be hard to penetrate a group and get a social hit going with any form of regularity. And I think what the 40-40 hitting clubs managed even quite quickly is just to kind of bring in more diversity of people onto court, make them feel very welcome, and then give them an awesome environment just to play some tennis in. And then do all the fun social stuff after. I mean, the tennis, it, you know, if there's no drinks after, is it tennis? Maybe. And, you know, that can be coffee. That can be a little non-alc, a little low-alcoholic beverage or a water. 
or straight to the hard stuff. Um, but look, I just think it's great. And that for me is a favorite tennis memory. Thrashing all of my mates under the scorching sun at Eildon, watching them do hammies, break shoulders, um, and enjoying some cold cans after and wishing that more people would have that kind of experience. And there we are. Some of my formative tennis memories, which I hope give some insight into the kind of person that I am, why I love the game, and why I want to bring the 4040 brand to the masses. It's about a shared common space where people are very welcome, where tennis is available to more types of people, and maybe people who wouldn't normally pick up a racket and have a game. If you like this podcast, May I ask one kindness of you? Please subscribe. Why not review? Why not make that review five stars? If you think it's worth five stars, even leave a couple of words such as, this is a podcast I've enjoyed and I'd like to hear more of. Or, this is a podcast which made sounds in my ears and those sounds sounded good sounding. I want to keep doing this. I'm aiming for weekly. So I will be trying to bring you some of the great stories, some of the some of the interesting things that you haven't heard before. I want to connect with different tennis groups, individuals working behind the scenes, um, maybe even some stars. If you're a star and you hear this, connect with me uh, like a star. Um, follow us on Instagram, 4040 Hitting Club. Um, engage with us, send us a message, tell us what you want to hear and see. We're doing exciting things. We are working on our first drop of our off-court collection. I guess we want to bring you some really nice, premium, luxury tennis wear that's at a kind of nice price point that it's affordable. Giving season is coming up. Um, I think it's important not to go too crazy. Um, and if you buy something, make it good. Buy less, buy better is a slogan I've heard of. Um, and, you know, kind of cool. I like that. And for today, I think that's it. Looking forward to talking about more with you next week and bye.